There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Pray. Uh, since we're going to be covering the entire chapter, I'm not going to read it, so uh, I do want to pray first. Lord, we do thank you just for the, the chance that we can have laughter, Lord, and just a, a good time in you. And we do pray, Lord, that you would take your word this morning and by your Holy Spirit, let it do that work that it only, only it can do in a human heart. That is transform us and make us just a little bit more like you. Ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to begin by asking you a question this morning. What do you want your legacy to be? On that day when you look back at the end of your life, how do you want to be remembered? What are the most important things in your life? In 2002, Jack Whitaker from Jumping West Virginia had just won $314 million, the largest undivided jackpot in history. He took the one lump sum payment and received $113 million after taxes. Listen closely to this part. He tithed and gave one-tenth of his winnings to the church. That's $11.3 million. Now, Jack was a solid church attender and was a respected member of his church. But things began to unravel. We are told that the love of money is the root of all evil, and such was the case in Jack's life. Over the next few months, he frequented a strip club called the Pink Pony and was eventually picked up for a DUI. Over the next two years, Jack's marriage would dissolve His granddaughter, who he raised, would drive from a drug overdose. His business deals would lead to numerous lawsuits, and close friends would abandon him, as his money changed him to the point that no one wanted to be around him anymore. Now, Jack has an Old Testament counterpart in Saul this morning. Saul will look back on his own life and declare, I have played the fool." and erred exceedingly. From that, I think that there are many things that we can take from this chapter that will enable us not to follow in his footsteps. Look at verse 1 with me, please. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hakali, opposite Jeshimon? And Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakalah, which is opposite Jeshimon, by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. Are you familiar with the expression déjà vu? The phrase is French, and it literally means already seen. Now, deja vu describes the feeling that what is happening to you at this moment 
has happened to you sometime in the past. When you feel as if life is doing a double take, that is deja vu. Not to be confused with vuja day, which is the feeling that what is happening to you has never, ever happened to you before, or deja mu. That's the feeling that you've experienced all this bull before. (laughs) But this morning, I want to talk to you for a few minutes about what we could call a specific type of deja vu. Not just when life does a double take, but when trouble does a double take. I'm talking about those pesky, persistent problems that you thought were in your past, but they come back to haunt you in your present. Now, David experiences this problem in 1 Samuel chapter 26, when trouble did a double take in the person of King Saul. You may remember a couple of chapters earlier that Saul chased David, bent on killing him. Now, David shows Saul's mercy, which seems to touch the murderous monarch's heart, and they seemingly leave on good terms with one another. But something happens to set Saul off again, and so once again, he sets out to seek David's life. David has to be asking himself at this point, I thought we had all of this settled. I thought this problem was behind me. How many times do I have to go through this? What do I do now? That is what I want to talk to you about this morning. What to do when trouble does a double take. Now the action begins with the first two moments of deja vu. The people of Ziph brought Saul information about the whereabouts of David. Now, the eager to please Ziphites were the inhabitants of this area, and they were politically astute. They could see on whose side it was prudent to be. Now, something very much like this has happened before. If you remember back in chapter 23, we read these words. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? So we see these guys have ratted David out before. Do you remember that show, Little House on the Prairie? The Ziphites remind me of Nellie Olson, who is always tattling on everybody. Such people are just a joy to be around, aren't they? Now, the second appearance in Gibeah of the informers from Ziph is the test that will prove whether Saul's confession in the wilderness of Engedi was real or not. Now, we're not kept in suspense for very long. We read, So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. It's interesting that when we finally get to the end of 1 Samuel and David ascends to his glory and starts going to the towns that care for him during his time of suffering, he bestows upon these towns the great wealth of battle. And it mentions about 30 different towns. Guess what town is omitted from that list? The town of Ziph. Verse 5. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay within the camp, with the people encamped all about him. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zariah, brother of Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. 
So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp, with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now therefore, please, let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. We find Saul in the middle of the camp, surrounded by all of his troops. He is obviously afraid for his life. But you know what? When you are out of the will of God, fear will be a constant companion in one form or another. In 1975, poodles were the most popular purebred dog in America, with 139,750 poodles registered. Now, during that same time, there were only 952 registered Rottweilers, a fierce breed often used as a guard dog. But by 1994, the poodle population had been cut in half, while the Rottweiler population had increased 100 times. Now, why is that? Well, I think one reason could be is that we're a society that lives in fear. Fear of being robbed. Fear of being hurt. Fear of being done wrong. And that fear can lead to hateful behavior just as it did for Saul. I don't know. Maybe the Rottweilers ate half of the poodles. We just don't know. So David says, Who will go with me? To which Abishai immediately volunteers. Now David didn't force anyone to go on this very dangerous mission with him. A dictator says, Go. But a true leader says, Let's go. And David is a true leader. Jesus, our greater than David, neither asks us to go where he hasn't gone before, nor where he won't go with us. Now, they found Saul easily because of that spear that was stuck in the ground near his head. And David knew very well the symbol of Saul's powerful, violent behavior, as it had whistled past his ear three different times with that spear. But Abishai concludes, this has got to be supernatural. God has surely delivered Saul into your hand once again. You just don't walk into a camp undetected like this unless God is involved. Even a ninja on crack couldn't do this. Now, Abishai would say, this is a God thing. This is God telling you to kill this guy right now. God has given you a second chance since you blew it over in Getty and just cut off a part of his robe instead of cutting off his head like you should have done. Then Abishai says, well, listen, David, if it's against your conviction to do it, please just give me permission, and I will do it. It will take me just one thrust, and I won't need any do-overs. But David, being wise, knew that this was his decision to make, and he couldn't allow Abishai to make it for him. One time, Ronald Reagan learned that it's better to make a decision than to let others make it for you. When he was a kid, his aunt took him to a shoe store and had the shoemaker make him some custom-made shoes. He was asked if he wanted square-toed or round-toed shoes. Well, he couldn't make up his mind, and so when he went to pick them up, he was given one round-toed shoe 
and one square-toed shoe. It was a lesson the shoemaker was teaching Ronald Reagan about making his own decisions. Look at verse 9 with me. And David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, Furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please, take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head, and they got away. And no man saw it or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. David says, no, we can't touch the Lord's anointed. I can imagine Abishai saying, oy vey, here we go with the Lord's anointed thing again. But why not touch the Lord's anointed? David then reminds Abishai and us in verse 10 with these words. He says, as the Lord lives. He is saying, don't forget, our God is alive. We don't have to take things into our own hands concerning this matter. God said, I will be king, and he is able to bring about without us breaking his command and doing anything to the Lord's anointed. So I think the first principle to keep in mind when trouble does a double take is don't run away. Now, I don't mean that you don't need to be cautious. David didn't go rushing into Saul's camp, swinging his sword, you know, screaming, bring it on. But he knew he couldn't keep running. He had to deal with the problem at hand using all the wisdom and courage at his disposal. You will never get anywhere by trying to run when trouble does a double take. The difficult thing is the temptation to escape is sometimes stronger the second time you face a problem because you remember how very difficult it was to deal with it the first time. You may still carry the scars of the last time you battled this difficulty. And the thought of going through that painful experience again can seem almost too much to bear. But if you've tried everything you know to avoid trouble, and it still seems inevitable, and it's not time to cut and run, but to stand and fight. When trouble does a double take, you have to make up your mind to boldly face it, and with God's help, do the best that you can. Now, granted, there are problems you can deal with by walking away from them. But often, when trouble does a double take, running away is never the answer. You have to still up your nerve and boldly face the problem and do the very best that you can. But what does doing the best that you can involve? David demonstrates two things you must do when trouble does a double take. The first is David continues to do what is right. What was David to do now that he had located Saul and now that he knew that Saul's heart was unchanged? What would he do now that he knew that his earlier restraint and his appeal to Saul at En Gedi had achieved precisely nothing? Saul's words could not be trusted. Reconciliation had proved impossible. What would David do now? Now, it would have been very easy to argue that David had been wrong in the cave 
and that God was indeed giving him a second chance to kill King Saul. But David's decision was based on principle and not on circumstances. David knew that it was wrong to lay hands on God's anointed. Now, one of the temptations we face when trouble does the double take is to try to figure out what we should do differently. You may think, I obviously didn't handle this problem right the first time, or it wouldn't have happened again. But that's not always true. Often the best way to handle trouble that does a double take is to keep doing the right thing. As David and Abishai slip into the enemy camp, once again there is Saul, as helpless as a sleeping baby, on the ground before David. They enter the camp as the soldiers of Saul sleep the divine sleep of divine sedation. It's the same word we find in Genesis that when God put Adam in a deep sleep to take his rib. Abishai whispers, God has given you a second chance to settle this score once and for all. If you don't want to do it, let me. I won't need but one shot and my spear will finally take care of the Saul problem. Don't you imagine that had to be incredibly tempting to David. David showed mercy to Saul once and that didn't seem to work. Maybe there really is no other way to get rid of this problem except to kill King Saul. But David resists that temptation. Once again, David swipes something close to Saul, this time a spear in a water jug, and leaves Saul unhurt and snoozing away. Once again, when trouble does a double take, David still does the right thing. And since the incident at the En cave, David has also learned from his experience with Nabal and Abigail. His lesson then was profoundly important for this day. It was not up to him to save himself with his own hand. Vengeance was God's business, not David's. Now, this was in tension with the logic that supported Abishai's proposition. His reason for restraint for harming Saul was not a forlorn hope that Saul might change. Nor, by the way, was it an act of simple nonviolence. Whatever you make of David, you cannot accuse him of being a pacifist. Just ask Goliath. But David refused this particular act of violence against this particular person for this particular purpose. It's not always easy to keep doing what is right. Sometimes when trouble does a double take, you'll be tempted to try something else, something different, something not quite right to handle your problem this time. For example, last time they made that smart remark, you stayed calm and ignored it. This time you'll give them a piece of your mind. Last time you told the truth that got you into trouble. This time you wonder if maybe a little lie might be smarter. Last time you did the right thing, and where did it get you? This time you wonder if maybe doing wrong would be a better option. If doing right doesn't do the trick, maybe doing wrong will at least make sure that this trouble won't do a double take. Now, when we get to thinking this way, we need to remember a special nugget of wisdom from God's Word. It says, there's a way that seems right to a man but the end thereof is the ways of death.
It's never a good idea to sin. Even when it's logical, even when it seems reasonable, even when it seems unavoidable. You will always live to regret doing the wrong thing. And you will always live to be glad that you did the right thing. When trouble does a double take, if you are wise, you will do what is pleasing to the Lord, not what pleases us. If you did the right thing the first time around, that means you need to do the right thing again. If you did the wrong thing the first time, then you have a second chance to get it right. But whatever you do, don't make the foolish decision of choosing sin as your way out. Sin is always just another road to more trouble. I read this week about two hunters who came across a bear so big that they dropped their rifles and ran for cover. One man climbed a tree while the other man ran into a cave. Now the bear sat down between the cave and the tree, and then suddenly the hunter in the cave came running out almost into the waiting bear then turned around and and dashed back into the cave. The same thing happened a second time. When he emerged the third time, his companion in the tree frankly called out, Woody, are you crazy? Stay in the cave until he leaves. I can't, panted Woody. There's another bear in there. Well, like our hunter in that story, when you keep doing right, sometimes you'll feel like you are stuck between a rock and a hard place. You know what else? It's always easier to do the wrong thing than it is to do the right thing. Let me encourage you to always do what is right, and you won't be sorry. Galatians 6, 9 reminds us, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Verse 13, Now David went over to the other side and stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Do you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who are you calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your lord the king. This thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not guarded your master, the lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. And Saul knew David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the lord. For they have driven me out this day from sharing the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. So now, do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. David yells across the valley, waking everybody up. The original Hebrew of what David yelled was, Wakey, wakey, eggs and bakey. Not really. Erase that from your notes. David asked Saul, why are you pursuing me? Well, the simple answer is jealousy. 
An elderly woman decided to have her portrait painted. She told the artist, Paint me with diamond earrings, a diamond necklace, emerald bracelets, a ruby brooch, and a gold Rolex. The artist said, But you aren't wearing any of those things. I know, she said. It's in case I die before my husband. I'm sure he'll remarry right away, and I want his new wife to go crazy looking for the jewelry. Now, jealousy will cause people to treat you hatefully. Now, Saul was jealous that David was getting the accolades from the people that he felt that he should have gotten, and it affected the way he treated David for the rest of his life. David now berates Abner and the entire army for their lack of protection. David says, look, I have his spear and his water jug. Now, when David cut off Saul's robe in the cave, he reminded him that his kingdom would be severed from him. But in taking the spear, he humiliated him and robbed him of the symbol of his authority. The spear in the water jar as the instrument of aggression and the source of sustenance in the desert. Now, this is just my imagination. But I can envision David holding up that water jug silhouetted in the moonlight. And it probably looked very much like a head in his hand. It would have been a subtle reminder that that water jug could just have easily been Saul's head because they failed to protect him. Verse 21, Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Here is the king's spear, that one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much to stay in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord. Let him deliver me out of all tribulation. And Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Saul will very soon slink off of the pages of Scripture with the summary conclusion, I have played the fool. Saul is a classic case of lack of discipline. He fluctuated between his feelings, the evil spirit of rage, bitterness, and anger. If you remember, once he tried to kill his own son, once he ordered the death of 85 priests, And although Saul may have been head and shoulders physically above the rest, inwardly, he was a dwarfish man with a rotting soul. He was a pawn to his own passions. And although Saul doesn't know it, he is very soon about to die. Therefore, this is going to be his epitaph. I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. That's a real danger this morning. There are many people who just play at life. They play all through their life. What new toy can I get? Or what new place can I go? Their life is consumed with playing. And often it's not until the very end of their days that they finally realize, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. I wonder what it must feel like to come to the end of your days And be headed towards your eternal destiny. And you have to say to yourself, I have played the fool. 
I've pursued things I shouldn't have pursued. Now, I believe one of the primary messages of the Bible is to teach us to live as though this could be our last day. So it's very sad that someone could come to the end of their life and then have to declare, I can encapsulate my entire life in just one sentence. I have played the fool, and I've erred exceedingly. Now, this was the last time that these two would ever see one another. Now, David did not accept Saul's invitation to return with him because he knew that Saul could not be trusted. So the two men part. Saul heading for ultimate disgrace and death, and David to ultimate glory and victory. So as we close, I return to my opening question. What do you want your legacy to be in life? We need to take a lesson from Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived outside of Christ. He wanted to know what was really important in life. And in his search, he tried everything. Listen to what he discovered. He said, I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all of my work, and this was the reward of all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Solomon chased after everything this life has to offer. He pursued science, philosophy, humor, drinking, partying, women, architecture, gardening, possessions, wealth, music. This guy tried everything. His conclusion at the end, this too is vanity, or it's worthless, it's meaningless. In fact, Solomon in Ecclesiastes uses the word meaningless or vanity 35 different times. Now, C.S. Lewis once wrote, If I find in myself a desire that this world can't fulfill, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. So if we are made for eternity, and we are, it makes sense now that we would live our lives in light of eternity. Because I don't want any of us to come to the end of our lives and have to say, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Oh, Lord, please don't let that happen to anyone in this room. You know where we all are at. And I pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you would reveal to us maybe changes that we need to make or maybe encouragement that you need to give us or maybe discipline we need to endure. Whatever it takes, oh, God, we pray that you would do that. None of us wants to get to the end and look back over our lives and realize that we played the fool and that our lives were worthless. So, Father, I pray you would just do what needs to be done in each individual life here. We ask in Christ's name, amen.